actually recording this time. <laughs> My God, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> this is how we should start the episode for sure. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Ah, <laughs> uh, we are we are going to to do something different. Well, it's not that not different. not so different. We just did it. We literally just did it, and and I uh, forgot to record. So. You're welcome to Uncertain Things. This is the podcast that you're listening to right now. <laughs> second of all, are you allowed to say second of all? I heard debates about that. Never mind. I'm not S- the word police here. Second, we, both Vanessa and I are very, very tired. This has been a difficult summer. I know that you are not tuning in to, because you care about our personal travails, but it has been a long summer already and we're only in, we're still in, freaking June. So we decided to take it easy this week, even though we have a few guests um, episode recorded and waiting to be released, and they will be released. We decided to, to have some fun this time and talk about some topics that have been on our mind. And for this purpose, we have invited a friend, flatmate, and spouse of, of one of your or your co-hosts. I'll, I'll let you discern of, of whose. With his help, I make sure to keep Vanessa up at three in the morning because I just can't make him agree with me on certain things. And I will not let him sleep until he does. And Vanessa, innocent bystander that she is, <laughs> is forced to listen to these arguments. I think at this point you can probably repeat our positions to us and do the whole duck season, rabbit season routine at least when it comes to topics that we've repeatedly visited, like cancel culture. I know. I think you overestimate my my power of concentration. <laughs> I uh, especially when you guys are talking at three in the morning. I am asleep. That's what I am doing. Yeah. Uh, so we decided instead of bringing one of those fancy pants experts as we usually do, we decided for today to just jump in and discuss these topics that keep Vanessa up at night in, in a more personal, intimate way, the way we do with Misha every once in a while, but this time with, with a, the person who's a little more Jewish, because we don't have enough Jews on this podcast. So, Zev, hi, how are you? Hi, Dom, how are you doing? Zev, uh, he is an engineer. He thinks, breathes, eats, and dances like an engineer. Yeah, specifically a programmer. Not that that really matters, but but engineer is very broad. Yeah, right, right. Although, although also whenever something breaks down in our household, of the material type, Zev is the only person who knows, including including the the doorknobs, which do fall off quite often. He works in one of the benighted big tech monstrosities that we like talking about every once in a while. Uh, specific companies shall remain nameless. He's he's a bona fide programmer and he's just happens to be wrong about almost every single topic so the topics upon which he's wrong which we'll cover today are first evil the question of evil and moral relativism probably second cancel culture because inevitably any dialogue between zev and myself will devolve into disagreement about cancel culture and its existence or lack thereof and third would be Zev's deepest passion, which is voting theory, because uh, we, as you may know, live in New York, and New York is now currently experimenting with ranked choice voting. For Zev, fixing the voting system is one of the answers to our oft-asked question, what do we do now? And how do we fix this this mess that we're in here in the United States? And for Zev, this is one of the answers. So we'll, we'll get into that. I obviously disagree with him. He's obviously wrong. So point number one on the agenda, evil. Just getting us started in the in the right mood. Zev and I s- spent a few hours last night. Not 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 not. I, I don't remember if it was the middle of the night, the middle of the day, something something hazy. It's summer. I don't know what time is. Um, 
talking about a certain politician who shall remain nameless. And I described his, he shall remain nameless because, because you, know, you know who he is. And <laughs> I described his, his actions and, or at least some of his attributes as full, on my definition, evil. And Zev, being one of the orphans of, of Richard Dawkins, I embarrassed myself calling him Charles Dawkins when we were interviewing Tom Holland. So <laughs> that's rough. Keep, yeah, it was rough. Educated by the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the new atheist movement, emphasizing rationality and precision of language. And Particularly Dawkins and, and also Carl Sagan, who isn't one of the horsemen, but uh, very much predecessor. Rationality and that sort of stuff. Right, and Zev's uh, birthday present to me was the um, Demon Haunted World. Strong, re- strongly recommended book on just how to think critically and why. <laughs> that sets exactly the type of of engineering thinking that eschews expressions like evil, which are first imprecise and relativistic by essence, and and often just 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 too moralistic and t- which makes it to the point of high passions low accuracy which is recipe for a disaster all of which I, I agree with however my argument was that we shouldn't be seeding the the passion and indignation that comes with expressions like good and evil while acknowledging that ontologically in truth there is no such thing as 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 a true manual for behavior there is no objective code of ethics but we should nonetheless with this in mind keep the right to criticize certain behaviors certain t- actions as categorically beyond the pale and do so with the highest form of emoted condemnation that we can come up with and that to me is calling a thing evil Disagree with me, Zev. Yeah, so here's the thing. First of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is going to be fun. Um, If we don't have to record it again. (laughs) Yeah. uh, No, we'll just keep recording it forever, and it will still be fun, damn it. (laughs) Um, No. So not not only is is evil imprecise, but it fundamentally, like, assumes objectivism. And Adam said we disagree on a lot of things, and while this is true, the reason we disagree on so much is because we love to argue, and we fervently agree on things. We're like, oh, that's not fun to talk about. I don't want to just preach to my own choir. So so we find the nits that we disagree on. So we're both both moral relativists, um, but to different extents. And when when we talk about the word evil, I, in general, whenever there's a word that is ambiguous and confusing, uh, and people start talking past each other because they're using the word to mean different things. Uh, my general go-to solution is just don't use that word at all. Like, use a more precise word. Um, you know, so if you want to call someone evil, don't call call them selfish. Call them Machiavellian. Say that what they're doing is wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And I think you can still have just as much more outrage and say d- condemn that thing just as hard. Uh, without using the word evil, which implies this moral objectivism, which I just fundamentally reject. So to give it more context, the the unnamed politician, public figure, whose behavior I condemn as evil, isn't in himself evil, in my view. But his actions are, insofar as they stem from a total gratuitous selfishness that directly leads to cruelty. And when I think about it, when I think about somebody who's acting in in a in a utterly gratuitously selfish way, and in in doing so inflicts pain and suffering on others without any concern 
for their well-being. I can't think of another word for this than evil. Now, granted, I, I, Zev, Zev accused me of being a moral relativist, which to some extent true, because I am thoroughly unconvinced by the possibility of arriving at an objective truth in the field of morality. Moreover, I, as the name of the podcast suggests, believe that we as a species behave better when we accept the, the nagging uncertainty, nagging and irrevocable uncertainty on issues like ethics. But I, at the same time, with some contradiction, believe firmly that we must conduct ourselves in the real world, in life, as if there is such a thing as objective morality, while constantly mitigating that certainty with the underlying knowledge that there really isn't. And that's, that's a balancing act we just have to live with. If we give too much to one side, we get zealotry. If we give too much ground, and which is what Zev is afraid of, but if we give too much ground to the other, then we get anarchy, we get chaos, we get uh, what uh, Justice Scalia used to describe as we're, we're adrift at sea. And as we loosen our grip because uh, we're, we're too distracted by moral relativism, we, we create an opening for more wrongs to take place under our watch. And just because we don't have the, the, the moral confidence or uh, self-assurance to condemn them as such. Okay, so I did not hear this conversation last night, so I'm, I'm coming in fresh and I am, I don't think I've heard you, you, you two have this debate before. So I, I, am, I have a clarifying question for Adam because I, I'm currently leaning towards Zev, but I'm open to be persuaded by Adam. Um, but my clarifying question, when you were specifically talking about the politician for whom you were calling evil, were you thinking about the impact, the outcomes of his actions. Is that how you're deriving that, that this person deserves the, the word evil? The way that I phrased it in that particular case was a balance between the outcome and the intent. Right. The definition you came up with was like selfishness that causes cruelty. So like there is both. It's like the, the, the selfishness is the impulse and the cruelty is the, the outcome. Upon any scale. So... Scale and and, con- and and specificities are always important, and Zev had a, a, a nice rebuttal for this, which I, I hope he, he remembers to bring up, because I'm not going to do it for him. But I don't want to give too much credence just to uh, uh, consequentialism or utilitarianism on one side, or deontology and the emphasis on motive on the other. We need to find some balance between them. And I think that's kind of the agreement that we as a society landed on that's why for the most part judgment in in courts is is meted out based on the results of the action but we weighed those results based on intent to some extent just intent thought crime in itself is not enough cruelty in and of itself isn't enough and obviously bad intent or selfishness in and of itself isn't enough but when selfishness total selfishness gratuitous selfishness results in cruelty i can't imagine something that is more obviously what we as a society understand as evil. Right. So you always run into problems. Trying to define evil is, is a hairy business. And, and so I, I don't fault Adam for getting it totally wrong. But he made it both too narrow and too broad. Uh, it's too broad because if you are 
truly evil, some, some evil force puts you and someone else in a pit and says, only one of you can leave alive, tosses a dagger down and says, figure out which one it is, uh, you will selfishly, unless you're a pacifist, inflict cruelty on the other person out of self-preservation. Uh, and I don't think anyone would call that evil. So his definition is too broad. On the other hand, uh, when you talk about like a, a terrorist or a religious zealot, um, they're doing some, they're inflicting cruelty, but they're not really doing it out of selfishness. They're doing it because they believe in a greater ideal and they think that they're doing the right thing. So, and I think we, most people would call that evil. Um, so, so your definition doesn't work on, on multiple levels, <laughs> but that's fair because it was in a drunken conversation and I'm sure you will refine it over time. The criticism on the the side of self-preservation, I don't think that self-preservation is what we mean by selfishness. It is it is a self-regarding trait, but we selfishness has a moral tint to it, a negative moral tint. Self-preservation is a more almost a moral imperative. And I don't I, I think you're you're stretching the idea of selfishness to just mean anything that is driven by a, a, a self regarding desire. And so, if you if you're putting them and requiring me to draw this explication, then fine. I will just make sure that the word selfishness or find a different word to describe it, um, like egotism, if you want. So I'm not so convinced that self-preservation is a challenge. Your criticism on the point of zealotry, I do agree with, but that goes back to what I said, that we cannot support total certainty. Trying to salvage the word evil doesn't necessarily mean a belief in moral conviction. As I said before, my desire to bring back the usage or to, to rehabilitate the usage of the word evil is predicated on first accepting that underlying our, our moral philosophy is a total abyss of, of, of nothing, that there is no, no, no foundation, no real foundation, and therefore we should never be too confident or too certain about our moral verdicts. But despite of this gaping abyss, we can't live in a society if we don't build castles of, of, of moral thought on top of this abyss, and we need to build them as if we do have a foundation. We're basically Wile E. Coyote when he, he's running on air. And, and must never look down because he will fall. But as long as he doesn't look down, he can still keep, can keep running. So that's where we are, as far as I say it with moral philosophy. But we need to keep running. Right. It's like you fundamentally reject the idea of absolute evil, but you think that for society to keep going and, and fundamentally try to be objectively good, we have to pretend these things exist. And I, I don't know if I agree with that. Not objectively good, but yes, for society to actually survive we are those intuitions that we have about good and evil come from somewhere whether it's through socialization or through evolution we know that we have those instincts about what kind of behavior helps us what kind of behavior hurts us what kind of behavior we condemn we have a taste for things like equality and we have a taste for things like freedom and we have a distaste for things like oppression and and abuse and unfairness we're pretty much hardwired to experience those uh, judgments i'm clearly echoing jonathan hyatt's approach in the righteous mind and paul bloom's work whom we've interviewed and both of them show that we basically start our lives with 
with some some taste for for justice and and, and moral intuition, and that the tabula rasa approach is basically bunk. And if that's true, then this is something I think we should not cede only to the fundamentalists, because if we become too precious about not wanting to harness these moral urges that exist in us and, 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 and say like, no, 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 we understand that there is, there is no rational foundation to those feelings, we end up in the world where the zealots have more authority, they're more persuasive because they're not afraid to call on these urges, whereas we in the society of skeptics end up supine in this relativistic world of our own creation unable to press against a wrong and call it authoritatively by its name. We've basically overthought ourselves out of having the moral authority to call something wrong. See, and this is just where I, I don't think that the word saying that is wrong doesn't have enough teeth to it. Like maybe it doesn't have quite the rhetorical bite, but there's two things that make me nervous about evil. Uh, one is that... Uh, a wrong sounds like more of a a single thing that this person has done. It doesn't define their whole character. Evil, like you could say, this person did an evil thing, and they're not necessarily evil. But it's very you have to like specify that. The moment you say this person like is evil, like it's be part of their identity, then you just fall into this trap of assuming that they can't do anything good or they never will have good intentions. And I don't think that helps our political dialogue right now. Like we we both care a lot about um, partisanship and. The moment you start talking about politicians as evil, not only does it attack the politician's identity in a way that implies that you shouldn't be able to compromise with them and that they never have good intents, um, but it also attacks the people who vote for them. Um, it it it's one thing to vote for someone who does some stuff that's wrong because maybe you know you thought they had the good in, the right intentions and and you voted for them for the right reasons, but to vote for someone who's evil, you have to either be evil yourself or to be a, a, a willing idiot. And you don't really want to ever talk about voters that way because they're just trying to do the, the, the right thing. Okay, so you're opening a few other avenues of criticism. Practically, I agree with you. And first and foremost, if I haven't clarified yet, I, I don't think any person is evil. I think calling a person categorically evil is, is, is a problem. But condemning a person's actions or behavior as as evil i think that's that's legitimate and recommended especially understanding that there is nothing supernatural about this that the evil could be committed by by you and me and we all have the capacity for it um containing multitudes as as we do now whether by saying that the actions of so and so are evil does that render his voters or any supporter of his evil too maybe it does maybe it doesn't I don't know, but that's a second-order problem, determining uh, what's the state of mind of a person who gets behind certain behavior, supports behavior that he doesn't necessarily actively conduct, and, and what would be required for us to consider the support itself as evil. But your criticism is not really about that. It's, uh, you're doubting whether it's politically advisable to be using such such terminology. And in that case, probably not. Probably not. And that's why you don't often see the word used domestically. 
because politicians understand that it will alienate a lot of people on the margin. Right. And, and to be fair, I, I, I don't actually found my argument on this. I have two like totally wildly different arguments. One is that it's, it's wrong because because this word has no good definition and it's impossible to find this word. And so we're just using a word that is opening up the conversation to miscommunication and, and it's ceding ground to moral objectivists and by extension religion. Uh, but and this is a totally separate argument. And so I, I want to keep them separate. It's like politically, it's not great, especially in our divided nation right now. But if you're in a context where you're not a politician, you're not talking to voters, you're just talking between your friends, that argument's moot. Um, and I don't think everyone should talk to each other like they're politicians or like they're on the campaign trail. That would be a dystopian future I don't want to live in. And, and I agree with everything you just said. And I think I should emphasize that the reason I believe that in, in reclaiming evil is to break the monopoly of the objectivists over this powerful, poignant expression. I want to establish the, the right of the uncertain to express moral certainty. So, so it's interesting because I, I do agree f with you on a personal level. I do, I do think that I would like, on a personal level, I would like to be able to be more, to more clarifyingly define when I recognize bad behavior and call it as such. But when I think about public discourse, I guess I, I think about it in terms of practical ramifications and applications and the only times i've i've heard the word evil used is often to justify very bad things right you usually say something's evil because you want to go to war with some somebody and so therefore the action whether it was evil or not is evil because you need to rally and rile up people um so i i worry about using evil as as a word because in public discourse specifically because of that kind of obliteration that happens, which I think was what Zev was talking about before. That said, I'm wondering if there's an example of a time where you could use it and it would it would have a positive ramification. So for example, like I'm thinking nobody's really paying attention to what's happening to the Uyghurs right now. If we all started having a public discourse, calling it out as as evil actions with by China, would that make a difference? And does and does that even matter to you and your and your the way you're thinking about it, Adam? I I don't know and from the purely utilitarian argument, will that change? Okay, so first, your first challenge, which I think is is perfect, and this is exactly um, Ziv's, I think, strongest argument, that often evil is the tool of the zealot or or the uh, uh, the, the easiest way or to to rally people. For for action, which could be good, could be bad, but it is. But it is when more. When you're fighting evil, all bets are off. I can't stress this enough. I don't think there is room for discussing evil without acknowledging the underlying abyss. Uh, there has to be there has to be constant moderation and constant reflection on on the action. Something being evil doesn't necessarily, to me, means that we need to strive to eradicate it. That's the zealot's fallacy. Is that the, it's the Puritanism. It's the inability to tolerate. It's not just intolerance. It's the total inability to tolerate an imperfection, an impurity, an evil. We need to accept the fact that we must live with some evils. That some evil must be tolerated. And we need to be more reflective and conscious about which evils are we fighting and with what means and to what extent. And most obvious of all, you can commit evils 
in the name of fighting evil. I mean, this is when we say the lesser evil. This is what we're talking about. All these situations where, like, literally everything you do is evil, and you just do the least evil thing you, you can think of. Which, in my view, reinforces my point about I don't want to cede the, the, the idea of evil to the discourse of the objectivists and the zealots. Right. So uh, when we talk about ceding the word, though, I, I want to be very clear. Like, I don't want to cede the word in that I let the people who believe in objectivism then use it for whatever they want. Like, I, I want to, to make this word a word that everyone gets suspicious of. That if you say something's evil, like, you lose your audience because they realize that anyone who talks in absolutes, black and white, good and evil, probably is full of shit. And I agree that you need this pushback. You want, you want to be suspicious. You want to be critical of the way this word is thrown about. But you have to acknowledge that this impulse to over-rationalize, over-soften our language, to, to, to over-sophisticate our, our moral thinking is making us dull to atrocities sometimes. And this goes back to, to Vanessa's point about the Yeagers. See how easily we're ignoring atrocities around the world because our cultural conversation just allows us to relativize the harm. Well, sure, that might be bad, but the U.S. really doesn't have the right to judge what's happening on the other side of the world. Plus, white European colonialism is worse, and therefore we have no right to even think about applying our liberal worldview on whatever is going on in China. But what's wrong with the word atrocity? Because why is, what is atrocity? It's an evil act at a massive scale. That human-engendered evil is at the root of what makes an atrocity an atrocity. Otherwise, if it were just a question of say, scale or the scope of suffering inflicted, then what's the difference between an atrocity and a natural disaster? What makes an atrocity an atrocity is the evil intent of the perpetrators. No, but see, that's the one, the one place I'm, I'm comfortable calling something evil is, is when, it's, when it's more separated from, from individual identities. Um, when it is more like a force of nature, like a hurricane, like when we talk of Moloch. And, and I'm, not also, I'm also not uncomfortable calling individual acts evil. Um, but I'm very... There's three categories. Like, so I'm fundamentally against calling people evil. And, and I'm pretty okay with calling individual specific acts evil. Um, but it's a very gray line because the moment you, you call an act evil, it gets associated with the person. Um, and then it's very easy to slip into following like categories of things evil to say killing is evil. And the moment you say things like that, you're really jumping the shark on, on gray areas. Yeah. yeah. And the whole point is, is finding that where, where we have this definition and accepting this definition is and will shift because there is no foundation, but that doesn't mean we should abandon the attempt to, to, to recognize certain acts as beyond the pale. As to your point about finding it more comfortable to define things as evil when they are further removed from individual decisions, but you can always trace any state-level action to individual decisions. You, if you think about what's happening to the Uyghurs or the Holocaust or any large-scale massacre that you'll comfortably call evil. Take that event and apply a magnifying glass, roll back the details, and, and you'll find, you can trace every individual decision that was involved. And then you have to ask, 
where where does where does the evil happen? Is is evil just uh, an illusion of perspective, like an impressionist painting? You you see you see the dots forming a picture only from enough distance, or can you attribute it to to the process or the system or or some of the individuals involved? Or is it just in the consequences? In which case, again, what's the difference between genocide and, and a volcanic eruption if they cause the same number of deaths? The bottom line is that the more you look, the likelier you are to realize that there is no such thing as evil, which is true, but which is exactly why we need to assert it artificially, but confidently. So, so I'm, I'm listening here and I think I have an observation here that, may, that I feel like the reason why you both have these positions is a bit because of your cultural backgrounds. And I'm going to attempt to artfully segue into our next topic of conversation via this commentary, but we'll see if it works out. Um, but I think that because Zev grew up in a part of the country that is very imbued with religion and perhaps black and white language around good and evil, he has come to the conclusion that it is less, uh, it is more harmful to wield this kind of language. And I think Adam being raised in an intellectual anti-religious uh, household, you're probably overexposed to the the <laughs> the drawbacks of of being so relativistic in your in your language that you never condemn anything, and therefore nothing is uh, and there's no meaningful ramifications. I feel like these two these two influences have have resulted in your in your position ideological positions on this on this world on this word, which I I you can you can push back on me if you like, but I do think this brings us into the cancel culture conversation as well. I, I just want to remind Vanessa and and listeners that I grew up in a city that was rife with religious zealotry, in a country that was rife with with nationalism and lots of moral binaries that I I rejected and despised. I lived through wars conducted in the name of good and evil and seen the sacrifice that they told. So I don't think I'm insensitive or blind to the darkness that comes with this language. Yeah, I guess I guess the crux of my argument is is Adam seems to seems to imply that that we can't that we can't really fundamentally um, reject an idea. Uh, without calling it evil, or at least that calling it evil makes it easier to fundamentally reject an idea, and and I think that that that's that's the wrong stance to take. It's not about easy. I believe that there are circumstances in which to not uh, apply the the harshest condemnation in our arsenal is a type of moral dereliction. Right. Well, I mean, I think that I think we agree that we should condemn and reject things like genocide. Um, really going on on a limb here. <laughs> I know, no, right? Um, but, but you don't need to call it evil to do that. And that's, I think, where we fundamentally disagree. I think you can say that is the opposite of the society we're trying to build. I always think about trying to get to what version of society we want. The opposite of the society we're trying to build is certainly not the harshest term that we can condemn something with. Evil to me is the bad guy that is in every video game that is maybe Nazis, but it's whoever you shoot, stormtroopers. Every stereotype America is fighting at a particular it's moment. It's the faceless villains that you can shoot without feeling any guilt because they're evil. Right. This is what I reject. And I think you can say these people are committing genocide, and that's that's so much more nuanced and fundamentally useful. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily more nuanced, but it's never about diminishing the person's humanity. 
it's it's the 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 worst literature is the literature that depicts Nazis as these non-human um, um, uh, agents of evil, and even even calling them agents is too much because they're basically they couldn't help right. but the cogs in the evil machine or whatever, and that de- exa- de- defeats the whole point in my view. It's an absolute immoral perspective, and if anything, that it's the opposite of what I'm advocating for because part of the power of the word is that it delineates a line. Of, of acceptable behavior in society and to nudge people to exist within it. In other words, have a concept of evil so you can have a concept of shame. The loss of shame in American politics is one of the biggest problems that we're facing. I mean, the Republican Party obviously has lost all shame, has lost all shame when it comes to committing to democratic values, has lost all shame when it comes to certain moral majority type Puritanism that they've uh, pretended to care about in the past. And in itself, I think that's a good thing, but it just shows you that they're, they're, they have no benchmark for good behavior. And we are seeing the results of this when you have no shame. And on the other hand, I, the problems with the Democratic Party is that there is, there, I, I, it's not exactly a loss of shame so much as it's just a total incoherence that is, is, is born out of moral relativism. They have the idea of evil only in, in, as embodied by maybe America or, or the West, but just having a villain that you can blame for everything does not a theory of evil make. And you can see the results when they're incapable of condemning Assad or, or what China's been doing to the Uyghurs. But, but don't you think that what's happening on the left right now is an over-eagerness to call out things and condemn things? Maybe they're not necessarily using the word evil to describe it, but it seems to me like this is, this is part of the, the problem that they're, the the left is so keen to just call things bad or you shouldn't do this this isn't right this is not how you do xyz but without any any real coherence so you get the violence and superficiality of zealotry without any of the without any constructive meaningful moral theory mhm yeah and we've talked about this a little bit it's something we've 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 thought about last year and we've brought up i think with our conversation with Batya Ungar Sargon as well. But but I do want to get back to this idea of, of cancel culture and why it's a con- continuous debate between the two of you, because I don't think we've necessarily set up for for the listeners. What, what, what the heck, who, what are the points of discussion here? And I think, I mean, if I've, if <laughs> if I've uh, absorbed it at all from osmosis, I believe it's Adam says cancel culture is a really, really bad thing. And Zeb <laughs> says, eh, it's, it could be worse. Yeah, I... So I, I want to say, like my my views have evolved over time, and and I and I encourage everyone to evolve their views over time. Um, I, I really really hate that we live in a society where like if someone flip flops on their idea, they're they're seen as like a lesser being. It's like God no, if your ideas have never changed, that makes me very deeply concerned right, about right. you as a person. Right. This this idea that when you find a politician, it's like oh my God, he doesn't say the same thing he said twenty years ago. Oh, what a hypocrite! No, it means he has grown over the past twenty years. I mean, Sure, it could be the influence of dark money, but it could also be that twenty he years have gotten more evil. <laughs> he could have gotten more evil. Right? <laughs> when when we started talking about cancel culture, I came from from more of a liberal bubble view that that I'd seen all the ways people to use the term cancel culture uh, as as just like a, a meaningless attack uh, on reasonable things. That it was a battle cry. Uh, to reject something and to to get people to ignore like nuance, um, 
and then started talking to Adam, and and now I'm, I have a slightly more moderate view here. I don't think it doesn't exist, but I still reject that it's like a crisis. Uh, I don't think it's one of the most important issues we face in our culture today. I mean, okay, then to be fair, I, I think sometimes when we got into our late night arguments, I needed to emphasize the dangers of it because I do think it's a real problem. But of course, perspective. There are way worse atrocities happening around the world, and in this country as well. Right. If, if we were to rank our problems, the number I would put on cancel culture is way higher. And by, I mean, yeah, like number 23 or something is what I call it. And you might call it nine or 10. I don't know. If you wanted to rank choice vote them, for example. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so given, given uh, accepting that a lot of people on the right taken the cause of cancel culture and critical race theory and have turned it into their winning ticket because it gets people really, really angry. But the reason people are getting angry is because there is something there. And that something is, if you take out all the packaging, all the panic packaging of Fox News, it's a story of how the left has receded from its commitment to liberal values. So, and it's not just a, it's not an aesthetic commitment. It's the foundation of democratic interaction. It's the foundation of the scientific system. It's the foundation of so many things that we cherish in what we call the modern world, they rely on these freedoms of expression, communication, and of being wrong, and of being on the wrong side, and of not falling behind an orthodoxy. You can't have science. You can't have what we consider progress. We can, you can't have a modern democratic society if you are not allowed to defy orthodoxy, whether you're right or wrong. It's worth even going back for a second to our evil debate because the assumption of there being no ultimate authority to define what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, which is the heart of liberal sciences, is also fundamental to my advocacy for bringing back the word evil. I want to be able to debate what evil is and that there is such a thing with the acknowledgement that there is no ultimate authority to ascribe it. But what's happening now in in our public discussion, and this is, in certain ways, it's more dominant on the left, but uh, but it's certainly not a left-exclusive problem. There's a desire to retain the moral certainty, but without any of the underpinning liberal assumption that you can't really have an authority in deciding anything. And the, one of the first things to go when, when, when you have this hyper one-dimensional moralistic view is to to force out the dissenting opinions because they they don't follow the paradigm because they are they are they're, they stand in the way of your vision for moral progress and that is the fundamentally what's at, at work for cancel culture that that I would assume that anybody who defends sciences anybody who wants to see a world that is more um, um, self-critical would 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 see immediately the 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 danger in such a cultural pathology, but also when we were talking about the, your concern about moral zealots, remember that the origin of free speech, the reason that it was enshrined in such a unique way in the American Constitution, is you know it's not because God came to revealed himself to the founding fathers and told them. I'm, I'm first among the amendments free speech shall be um, but because the founding was 
as, as you know, a lot of the, the smarter versions of critical race theory and critical legal theory will tell you, and, and as should be obvious, is the product of its time. In its time, there was a lot of racism, there was a lot of, of bigotry, there was a lot of commercial abuse and colonialism and many, other, many of the bad things that we rightly condemn today. But, it, but also, there was, importantly, a backlash against the sectarian civil war of religion which was taking place in Europe. Europe has seen the, the, the aftermath of the of Reformation as an endless spiral of, of religious sects fighting each other over ultimate doctrinal authority and, and killing anybody who disagrees with them. And what the, the intellectual revolution that came that, that came against that was the, the, the embrace of free speech and pluralism, which basically said, you, we're going to accept your right to be wrong, and we're just not going to kill you for it. And the state is not going to kill you, no matter how stupid or repugnant your ideas are. And we've collectively decided to go with a let's not kill each other for stupid ideas option. And then what began as a useful compromise to avoid constant slaughter also served as as a path towards a much better view of society in which people don't necessarily have an authority over what's right or true. And that truth and, and justice are determined not by coercion and threat of violence or, or threat of repercussion, but through democratic discussion. Pretty cool revolutionary stuff that contemporary illiberals and illiberals throughout the centuries look at and say, Mm, yeah, that's cute, but I think I'm going to go with the killing everybody who disagrees with me approach, or at least, you know, shutting them up. The, so the regression is not new, but what's so uniquely egregious when it comes from the left is that the party that pretends to be about diversity is rejecting the one tenet that has allowed America to become the, 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 the diverse place that it is, which is we will hear you out without killing you. So I, I agree with so much with so many of your points because I do think that that being able to speak your mind is fundamentally so important to like everything about the society we want to live in um, here in America. The place where it gets hairy though is that what I think that a lot of these these the place that a lot of these people are coming from is that they want to ensure that everyone has a seat at the table. They think that that voices have been silenced um, not through the means that we normally think of as, as like someone being forced to not talk, but that they haven't been even given the seat at the table in the first place so that there was no chance for them to be told not to talk in, at all. And what they're trying to do seems to be to, to change the rules a little bit so these people who have been pushed out of the conversation can now have a seat at the table, and then we get some new dialogue. But the unfortunate reality is that people push each other away. Um, and I would love to live in a world where where everyone had really thick skins and that you could insult the crap out of, out of someone and they would just be able to take it and then respond with rationality and eloquence. El eloquence. But that's not the world we live in. Your point is that because people don't have thick skins and because obviously the people who have been at the table longer 
have uh, the confidence of, of, of the dominant culture, let's call it. They can take in a stride attacks and criticisms, whereas people who have come from you know, disadvantaged positions sometimes are more prone to be uh, to clam up or to, to shut down when, when criticized because they see their positions as less secure, so they, they think they, they need to be more meek and sometimes put up with things that they oughtn't. Right, and and because there's there's a lot of implicit pressure on them to be a little bit more specific. Say, uh, women in tech is something I that I see in my day to day life uh, as not matching the population at all, and not matching the number of women I know who are who are good at math and good at science, but they're going into like uh, bio sciences and, and other things, and they're staying away from computer science. And a large part of it is because that computer science has been such of a boys club and women have been so easily dismissed that they've you know maybe joined a com- computer club and then been weirded out by the way that the guys in the computer club act towards them and then they choose a different field and so you kind of have to tell some of those guys in the club like listen the way you're talking is pushing people away it's not letting them talk like that me telling you not to do x y and z actually is Getting more, making your group more liberal and not more illiberal. I, I do think that there is room for understanding that certain behaviors. Let's say, imagining the the newsroom in the 1940s. I assume, uh, as uh, from from the, the tales we hear, that aside for all the uh, incessant smoking, you were likely to encounter as a woman the the occasional sexist aside or. The, the the side grope or the you know the friendly butt pinch something that you needed to learn to 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 deal with so yeah sometimes you need to evolve your practices in a way that doesn't effectively marginalize people right like I don't want to live in a world where the occasional butt pinch is freedom of speech you know uh, yeah yeah and, and and to be fair I think that maybe we have gone a little bit too far in some of our things but but my model of the world, which is not guaranteed to be right and and is a dangerous one, is is that uh, that the, the needle sort of swings back and forth. That that we we don't just calibrate correctly on this is the right thing. That to find the right thing to do as society, we have to go a little bit too far in one direction and then swing a little bit too far in the other direction. And we trust the voters to recognize, no, that's too far and pull it back. And that works really well when our when our demogra- voting demographic is sort of unified around the center. What's scary right now is we have this sort of bimodal area where you have uh, you know, the the left on one side and the right on the other side, and they're Completely getting off. further and further apart. And this is where it becomes catastrophic because both sides start calling each other evil, and then society collapses because you know you have a civil war or whatever. I don't I think, think we're anywhere near that. I, I, I just realized that I think you've made a more unintentionally you've made a more interesting point for reclaiming evil that we <laughs> need to find the evil that we both agree on. Yes. And we as a society in America, at least, um, but I, and I think uh, many places in the world are very divided right now. Don't have a shared narrative of what evil is. Yeah. And I think that that is maybe the real problem that I'm reacting to, but where you're wrong, aside for your swinging needle metaphor, which I see no reason to believe that it ends up calibrating towards the center, but that's almost a metaphysical disagreement. I, I think you're reacting you, your this intuition for you is based on us being born into a liberal society that tends to 
drive itself towards a moderate center. I don't see any reason to believe that this will necessarily go on this way. The liberal society that has, has created that vision is a blip in world history, and there is no reason to believe that the needle won't break hard in one direction. But to go back to the fundamental point about cancel culture or the, the violent defense of free speech, uh, <laughs> we originally wanted to have this discussion on the pod because our, our friend Ken and previous guest Ken Goshen kept asking for us to to. Uh, hash this issue out but unfortunately for him the entertainment value has decreased because we have at this point clarified a lot of our disagreements and, and i think come closer to understanding each other but still the bottom line for me the bottom line is when it comes to having to prioritize are, are we spending all our social currency to make sure that people don't feel uncomfortable so that they, are, that they have a bigger place in the debate, which is an important value in and of itself, or are we spending it on making sure that anyone can have a say? When it becomes a zero-sum game between those two things, I don't think it has to be, but I think it is presented this way. And when it becomes a zero-sum game, it is the latter that has to win, in my view. Yeah, I, I do think that at the end of the day, when you, when you make a decision, it can't be about people's feelings. It has to be about the facts. No, yeah, yeah. But, that, but this, is, this goes to a place where we more easily agree. Right. The problem is when you're disputing how to interpret the data or how to get the data or what the data really is and what is really telling you. And when we're talking about fields like social sciences or moral philosophy, for that matter, and especially when we're talking about social interactions, data becomes less relevant. But that does not change my commitment to free expression. Now, previously you mentioned voting, and I do want to emphasize that I am not talking about the law when we're talking about free expression, because I think these problems, these, these tensions are less legalistic. I think there is very little debate that in terms of a legal system, the U.S. still has one of the most robust defenses for free expression. And our upcoming guest, who is a legal expert, will, I think, vouch for that. The problem that we're talking about is that people, both on the right and the left, and can't emphasize this enough, cancel culture is a bipartisan problem. It's just different flavors. The problem is that we have a growing comfort among our populace with harming people because of their expressed opinions, values, ideas, and, and whatever other kind of social infraction. We have all become the prissy suburbanites constantly looking through the window to see what our neighbors are doing so that we can call them out on it and lead the choir in hate, derision, and calls for ostracism. And consequently, everybody is now so politically minded in the worst possible way that they are rethinking, rewriting what they're going to say, second-guessing themselves, recalibrating how they comport themselves publicly. This is not how you encourage creativity and openness and tolerance and debate and criticism in a society. This is certainly not how you get science. This is how you get decay. See, I, I definitely have mixed feelings here. I, I, don't, I don't think either extreme is right. But I, I do want to say that I, just, I definitely agree with you that when you have too much word policing, um, especially when the rules shift too quickly... That excludes people from the table because pe pe many working class people um, or rich people like don't want to be keeping up with what the latest lingo is 
And it's bullshit. Uh, they shouldn't have to, to just be respectful of each other. Um, and so when people take too much offense because you're not using the most up-to-date lingo, they're part of the problem too. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Like In the ideal world, we're all more thick-skinned that when someone says something wrong-headed, we don't let ourselves get pushed out of the table. Um, and yes, that enables them to keep saying the wrong-headed thing, but like we want to live in a world where everyone can voice their opinions, and then the good opinions win out through free debate. Um, I just... I, I I will repeat that that's not the world we live in. So we have to like find this right balance of like how can we give people the most freedom of speech we can and the least pol word policing rules we can get away with without pushing groups of people away from the table. I per I personally don't think that word policing of any kind is actually going to get you there. It's if anything, it's going to teach you the opposite. It, 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 it's going to teach you to rely on people telling other people that people who disagree with you to shut up in order for you to 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 cover the place for yourself. I think. It is fundamentally liberal, but besides that, I'm also not convinced that this is truly and genuinely what a lot of the people making those rapid changes to language are trying to do. I think often it is a way for people to mark their trade, and it just operates as a shibboleth for, for social and, and educational status. And, you know, I also just find it incredibly condescending to think that people, just because they come from a marginalized group, can't fight for their own seats at the table, to use your cliche, without the help and beneficence of the hegemonic culture. And in the long run, all you've done is establish a new kind of patronage between the, the marginalized and, the, and those in power, under whose kindness and constant policing of expression, the inclusion of the marginalized depends. But even if, if, if you somehow reject all these objections, the fundamental problem remains. You cannot have a liberal society without an unwavering commitment to freedom of expression. But we, we, we've spent enough time on cancel culture and uh, evil. Let's, let's give you a chance to end on your favorite topic, voting theory. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get, let's get into ranked choice voting. So Zev, would you explain to the dear, the dear, dear listeners, uh, what is it about this concept that intrigued you so? And hopefully in, in answering this question, you'll be able to define what the hell it is as well. My, my history here is that, uh, that I co-founded a startup uh, trying to spread the word about different ways people can vote and how much it matters, how much difference it can make in the outcome, uh, how much more democratic it can make your society. Namely, how the way we vote, uh, the system we use, which is called first past the post, um, or occasionally winner takes all, where you just like vote for one person, period, um, is a terrible, terrible system. It's so intuitively the way you would vote for something, um, but when you follow it to its natural conclusion, it fundamentally guarantees a two-party system. Uh, and that's almost never democratic unless everyone in your country actually falls into two parties. Um, in reality, in America at least, uh, we have, well, historically we used to have roughly 30% Democrats, 30% Republicans, and 40% people who didn't identify with either party. Um, in recent years, that's shifted a little bit, but, um, but that's still, we still have a lot of people who don't like either party, who don't want to identify with the other party. And so when we have our country being run by only these two parties, it's real bad. And the way we vote fundamentally reinforces that. 
Um, and so the thing that's interesting that's happening right now is that New York City is about to have its mayoral primary election, and they're using ranked choice voting for the first time, which is a drastic improvement on the way we vote. But what is it? <laughs> Why is it better? Right. So what ranked choice voting is, is exactly what it sounds like. Instead of picking one person, one, let's see, three candidates, you don't just pick the one you like the most, you rank them in the order you like them. Um, generally, you know, in a simple election with three people, you probably would rank all of them if you know them. But if there's like a ton of people, uh, you just rank the ones you know in the order you like them, and then you don't have to, you can still just. And if you only know one person, you're like, I, I want them. You can just put them one, and you can vote exactly the same way you used to. It's not a scary thing. Um, but if you know a little bit more, and you're like, say, you know, I like the Libertarian the most, and then the Republican, and then the Democrat, you can do that. You can still vote for the Libertarian. And in our current system, I think we all intuitively know that, or we've been told, that if you vote for the Libertarian, you're throwing their, your vote away. And if you're voting strategically, that is correct. Um, but this is actually the real fundamental evil, is, is you shouldn't have to vote strategically. You should... You should, yeah, I don't. I don't ascribe it to people. I ascribe it to those forces, like the Mullocks. This I, is a Moloch. I, I, I don't ascribe it to people either. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, the evil here is I don't get to vote for the person who I believe in. I believe in in the libertarian. I don't. Sorry, I'm this hypothetical person um, believes in the libertarian, and they don't get to vote for the libertarian He's because I really wanted to vote for Jill Stein. <laughs> good lord, um, because it's a waste of their vote hypothetically, strategically, and and that's really wrong. And that's why we have a country that that is totally disconnected from politics. That feels like their vote doesn't matter because, as a uh, you know, South Park wonderfully put it, they have to choose between a douche and a turd, and they don't want to vote for either one. They don't believe in either one, and then they just disengage from politics. I guess I a, if everybody in the country puts, if, if ranked choice voting were applicable for like a presidential election, and if everybody in the country put the same person as second, but yet the, the votes for the first person would be very, very diverse, that means we would elect the person that everybody thought was the second best choice. And this would be a more democratic result in, in your estimation? It would, it would instill a lot more confidence First of all, not necessarily would happen that way. Okay. The way that ranked choice voting works, uh, to, to give you to lay it all out, it's not that complicated, is just instead of doing one election, they, they run the numbers um, on the first place votes, and whoever has the least gets kicked out. And then whoever put them first, their vote will fall down to number two, and then they run the election again. Uh, this is where the other name for this comes off, which is instant runoff voting. Um, some states have runoff elections, but they happen, they're actually two separate elections. Like you'll do one election with five candidates and then it'll narrow down to two candidates and then a month later they'll do a second election. That's like a normal runoff election. Um, IRV, instant runoff voting, the other name for ranked choice voting is, is we're doing the runoffs, but we're doing them instantly. So, so you keep doing these runoffs until some candidate has an absolute majority. They have more than 50% of the vote, which means that you could keep doing runoffs all the way down to get down to one candidate, but that candidate already has proven that they would win that. Um, so I think it's actually easier to imagine that you just keep doing runoffs until there's only one candidate left. So again, just to be thing. clear, because even though I've, I've been I've been talking to you about ranked choice voting and I've been reading and he hearing about this, the deal is that they it keeps on eliminating the lower the the, the lowest winning or lowest vote earning candidate, 
and then people who voted for them get their their vote redistributed to their second choice, right? That's exactly. The, that's the and, and why this is really important is the thing called the spoiler effect. Um, and this is really, really pronounced in American presidential elections, where you often have two big parties, and then you have two small parties, which are aligned with each of the big parties. Uh, you have the libertarians, which align more with the Republicans, and the Green Party, which aligns more with Democrats. Um, and so very, very often, the vast majority of people who want to vote Green Party, their second choice would be the Democrats. And the vast majority of people who want to vote Libertarian, their second choice would be the Republicans. Um, but usually these candidates, the, those two minor parties don't run as a very strong candidate, and they don't siphon off a lot of votes. The problem is, if a really strong Libertarian runs or a really strong Green Party runs, uh, then they steal votes from the party that is most like them. So let's say you have uh, a situation where you're like 45% of the people vote for, for Democrats and 46% of the people vote for Republicans and everyone else votes Green Party but prefers Democrats to Republicans. Then Democrats would lose that election and Green Party would lose that election and Republicans would win, but you know 54% of the population wanted Democrats to win, basically. Would have preferred Democrats to win to Republicans. And this is where ranked choice voting really shines um, because it means more than 50% of the population will be ultimately happy with the results of the election under ranked choice. And more than 50% of the population will be unhappy in the way we vote today. To people who are not familiar with the psychology of voting in the U.S., the party that loses blames it or or, or at least f seeks a path to blame it on the the third party candidate. So I remember specifically working at CNN in, in the immediate aftermath of Trump's election. Several of the shows that I worked on, I worked on, 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 I think, two or three at the time, had Jill Stein on to basically ask her, don't you regret running now don't you regret not leaving the race because you you essentially paved the path for trump's victory right if everyone who had voted for jill stein had voted for hillary clinton she would have won the election exactly so assuming that it's true that everybody who voted for jill stein would have voted for hillary clinton which is always the assumption in itself a foolish assumption but fine even if you take it at face value it just delegitimizes the right of a voter to express values that are different from the 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 two main behemoths. And obviously, green and libertarian are vastly different ideologically from Democrat and Republican. But it's very easy to see how our current voting system makes it very easy to shame and guilt the spoiler voter. Yeah, this is my 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 mom voted for Nader back 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 in the day and to this day i think oh, she's so she, still... she, she feels guilty for bush yeah she feels guilty about that she, she i think i remember her saying like oh man i really regret doing that yeah this isn't just academic and it isn't just jill stein nader and, and ross perot i think are the two historical like most ironclad examples because even if you don't assume blindly that all the people who voted for nader you know would have voted against bush uh, even if you give them a very conservative estimate on the number of people that would would swing each way, it still affected the election to the point that we had a different president for four whole years. And and then Bush won a re-election, which, you know, may have not happened the same way. with. So, like, it affected American politics and, by extension, international politics for eight years because of our shitty voting system. Uh, I'm curious now, like, 
What are what are the lobbies at play, the, the political influences that have convinced New York to give this a go? Because I'm, I'm just a little bit cynical because clearly there's going to be winners and losers in every type of system. So who are the ones that are pushing for ranked choice and, and should we be cynical or skeptical about them? I mean, you should always be cynical or skeptical about where a push comes from. But if the idea is fundamentally a drastic improvement on the system, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm personally not enshrined enough into New York politics to know who the players were that thought they would benefit from this and who thought they wouldn't. But these ten things tend to be short term. There's certain policies that it's sort of obvious that they'll help one side or the other in the American um, system. Ranked choice voting isn't one of those things. And generally, almost all of the, the better systems of voting, because I should be clear, as much as ranked choice voting is a drastic improvement over first past the post, it's not perfect. And if I could wave a magic wand and pick a new voting system, it's not the one I would pick. And it's not the one almost any serious voting theorist would pick. But everyone agrees that first past the post is the worst. And if we do anything else, it's better. So I honestly don't care who was pushing it. Um, and even if they would have benefited in the short term, they probably wouldn't have benefited in the long term because democracy benefits the people who have public support and that just changes over time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but polling for ranked choice voting is incredibly difficult. And I, I don't think there was anybody, I mean, considering just how miserable pollsters have, have performed in 2016 and even in 2020, they certainly are not geared for for assessing ranked choice voting, right? So even groups and candidates that think that they're going to be the main beneficiaries of this system don't know it yet. Right. And this didn't happen through legislature. So this wasn't like one party was in power and they figured we can cement our power by doing this. This was like activists made this a ballot initiative and then the people supported it. I, I have a question about uh, this idea of like expertise and I guess human psychology oh, when yeah, it that comes was my, to voting. My next point. Great. <laughs> I'm just anticipating your thoughts. Um, well, I guess what I'm thinking, of, and I'm, I feel like I'm seeing this firsthand now with the mayoral um, vote coming up where people are full of shit. Oh, well, that's always in every vote uh, situation, but um, I, I feel like I'm getting the, the both, I'm seeing both the positives and the negatives of this system, which is one, I can't, I can't just go do the lazy route of just being like, I can't go the lazy route of just being like, ah, I like that one. So I'll go with that one. I, in theory, will have to like do a bit more research and stuff and learn what their positions are. And, 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 and to be people who are not following the New York election, we have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 112 <laughs> candidates right now, right? Point four. Um, but, and then the downside of just exactly that is because you could say, oh, great, Vanessa, you're going to have to like learn some stuff and make an informed decision as opposed to what you would have done before, you ignoramus. But in, in reality, what's going to happen is that I'm going to decide I'm too busy to do that research and I may not even vote at all, which is, would be terrible. I, I'm gonna, still going to try, but that is a, a highly possible, high possibility. So wh how do you, is this, is this net positive in the end? So voter fatigue is a real issue, and this is why any real voting reform has to not put too much burden on voters, and it needs to be simple enough that people can understand it. Um, even ranked choice voting, even though it's relatively simple, especially the way you vote, just putting things in order, um, gets a little complicated when you when you try to explain how the winner is chosen. And, and I explained it earlier, and people do a better job 
Um, but the fact that it's not obvious, that it requires explanation at all, is like a downside. Um, but the more important thing is voter fatigue. Uh, and this is why some systems that are objectively better on some metrics, like score voting, in my opinion, are worse. Because with score voting, you don't rank candidates, you just give them a rating. We'll say between 1 and 100, but you pick whatever scale you want. Um, and that, to me, is super intimidating. Like It's hard enough to pick the candidate like, the best, which is the bare minimum. Which, by the way, you can do in ranked choice voting. If you have found one candidate you like and you don't know anything about the rest of them, don't feel bad. Just put one by that candidate's name and vote the way you always have. You can do that. If everyone did that, then we go back to the, the old world that's bad. But but that you're free to do that. Don't get overwhelmed. Definitely still go vote for one person. That's better than not voting at all. Um, but in score voting, you give everyone a score, and that to me would be way more intimidating. I would feel like I would have to do a mountain of research to do that, and I'd be way more likely to just vote for one person, which is called bullet me? voting. Are you kidding me? When I need to rank my favorite movies, I, I'm, I feel paralyzed, and I punch the person who asked me that in the face. So, like, you're telling me, like, I need to, like, rate... I, this is a candidate that I, I like six by 60 out of a hundred. Yeah, no, no, but 20. ranking your favorite movies is very difficult because they're all so good. <laughs> That's not the situation we live in with politics. No, but even okay, even if we were talking about hate, you're uncomfortable using the word evil. But do I hate this as in like a 10% hate it or do I 5% hate him? Like, it's just thinking about the idea of having to uh, ascribe value to the politicians just scares the crap out of me. I would just give 100% to the to my favorite and that's it. Right. And and you should give 100% of your favorite. And if there's only one candidate you like, then that's, that's how you should vote. You, we want people to vote honestly. This is really for people who want to vote for someone who they think doesn't have a chance of winning. Um, so what, what's sure. the benefit? Explain the benefit of, of, of that system. Why is this in theory? So first of all, I think when we started talking, Seb and I, about ranked choice voting and voting theory in general, uh, the, the the idea of ranked choice voting in New York was hardly a glint in Andrew Yang's eye. It was just a kind of a topic that started being brought up because of the dissatisfaction with, basically with the way that 2016 shook out. I, I really think that without Trump and without the Jill Stein straw men, I doubt we would have seen this quick adoption of voting reform. But here we are a few years later, and and one of the biggest cities in the world has adopted this this system that you've been advocating for for years. And instead of celebrating, you're telling us, eh, not good enough. This is actually not a great alternative. What gives, Ev? Right. So the reason that ranked choice voting is is not ideal uh, is is that it doesn't actually eliminate the, the spoiler effect entirely. Ranked choice voting mitigates this, but it doesn't fix it. Um, it mitigates it in the more common cases, so it's still a drastic improvement. Um, and the, the common case that it mitigates it is what we have in presidential elections, where you have two big parties and some smaller parties. Once you, some of your smaller parties start getting big enough that they actually compete, when you have three equally sized parties, or especially four or five equally sized parties, situations like maybe more like the Republican 2016 primary, and potentially this primary that's coming up, uh, then it doesn't necessarily eliminate the spoiler effect. It just causes it to trigger under different conditions. And it triggers less often, so it's still better. Um, and the, but there's, there's a whole bunch of... So your answer, the reason is that it's still a problem is math. That's the, pro <laughs> that's the reason. Yeah, it's, it's just that um, to really I, like, 
there's a bunch of criteria in voting theory that that you can come up with these hypothetical scenarios and and say like oh in this scenario that voting system would not do the thing that every person would intuitively expect it to do and for first past the post the spoiler effect is that and it's the main thing um, and the more complex your voting system gets trying to combat the problems with the simple voting systems you get complex problems um, so the three main problems that you get is uh, you have a concept called the cordicent winner, you have uh, no favorite betrayal, and later no harm. The cordicent winner is the candidate who, when you look at the polls, you would say that candidate should obviously win. Um, and it's that if you matched up every candidate in a two-party election, so like these two candidates and only these two ran against each other, if any one candidate would win against all the other candidates, then that's the cordicent winner. And not all good voting systems elect the corset winner, winner every time. And that's a weird thing. Um, but there's also not necessarily a corset winner. You can get a rock, paper, scissors situation. You can end up with a cycle where this guy would be that guy, this guy would be that girl, and that girl would be that guy. And so there is no corset winner, so you still have to have tiebreakers. Your voting system is going to arbitrarily decide between one of those three people based on whatever it... So anyway, that's the one thing that can go wrong. The second thing, favorite betrayal is this really weird scenario where in some voting systems, if you put your favorite candidate first, it will cause them to lose. And what you actually need to do if you want to vote strategically is put someone else first, and then that makes them knock someone out, which makes your candidate win. Um, and then the last one is later no harm. And later no harm means that, let's say I do put my favorite person first, then anyone I put after that shouldn't hurt my favorite. The ranked choice voting fails no favorite betrayal, but score voting obviously fails later no harm because if i vote for one person 100 i give the, my favorite 100 and i give my second favorite a 90 and then all the scores are tallied and my second favorite wins by 70 it's my 90 that made them win and if i'd voted only 100 for my favorite and zero for everyone else my favorite candidate would have won so that's no later no harm and unfortunately almost every single voting system fails, even without ignoring Cordeset winner, almost every single one either fails no favor for trail or later no harm. Um, and the very few that don't fail either of those don't necessarily elect a Cordeset winner. So like there is no fundamentally right voting theory when you try to say like, let's eliminate all the edge cases that are weird. The best you can do is say, let's look at voter preference and then look at the outcome and see how closely it aligns with voter preference. And when it comes to that, what you're looking for is proportional representation, that everyone feels like they're represented and that the proportions of people representing them match the proportions of the population. Um, the other things you can look for are consensus candidates and certain voting systems like approval voting, which is a really great system, uh, tends to elect consensus candidates and that tends to make everyone happy. Approval voting? Yeah, approval voting is actually the simplest uh, alternative to first past the post, where you don't rank people, you don't give them scores, you just say, you still just check the box next to people. You can just check more than one. Um, in, in internet, in my programming... It's, so it's just a binary approve, disapprove? Uh, just, yeah, it's just, you check multiple. Like, in, in when you fill out a form, when there's the circles, you know, that means you can only select one. And when there's the boxes that you can check, it means you can check more than one. This is the boxes you can check. That's what approval voting is. And, and, and which one is your favorite? Ooh. So my favorite is actually three, two, one voting, um, oh God. which fails all the criteria, but it mitigates them all really well. 
but it, more research needs to be done there. If I could wave a wand today, I and, didn't realize there's such a thing as the voting pervert, but that's that's yep, what you are, Ziv. <laughs> yep. If uh, if I could wave a wand and change America today, and in the way I think would work the best and not confuse people the most, approval voting is is what I would go for. Which voting system would fix cancel culture? <laughs> well, like I said, approval voting selects the consensus candidate, and I think that's what we need in this moment. I don't necessarily think that the consensus candidate is always the best candidate. You have this dystopian future where we just elect white bread candidates who don't offend anyone. And so everyone approves of them. They're not, they, they don't, they're not divisive candidates. Uh, approval voting would not have worked well for people like Donald Trump or, or people like Bernie Sanders who, who really rally a lot, a lot of people on one side but really scare a lot of people on the other side. Um, but do we really want a bunch of Ted Cruz's, or sorry, a bunch of Jeb Bush's, a bunch of very, Biden? or Joe Biden's? Like, do do we want everyone to be Joe Biden? Like, in this moment, I think a candidate that doesn't scare people off is great because it it unpolarizes us to, to an extent. But there's, you need moderation in that too. How do you calculate an approval uh, voting, by the way? How do you do the, it's just who got the most approvals? Yeah, yeah, that's entirely it. It's Approval is great because it's the simplest one to explain to everyone it's and it, it's a very less overhead. Um, it's actually great. Like, why why aren't we doing this? This makes so much we sense. We should. Um, the one thing the one thing that I say that where's the problem there? The reason that I think some people would prefer rank choice to approval is that, uh, especially when you have two candidates going back to the common case in American politics, where it's like I really want to vote for the libertarian, I really believe in the libertarian, and I wouldn't mind if the Republican won. Um, you might not want to rank them the same because you want to express on your ballot that you prefer one over the other. And approval voting doesn't give you that freedom. So then it's like, but I don't approve of this one as much as I approve of that one. There's different levels of approval here and it might cause someone to bullet vote again, which, which means only voting for one candidate, voting the way we always used to vote and still do vote in many states. Um, and so, so you, don't, you want to disincentivize people from voting You want to reserve way. the right to hate someone. You want to reserve the right to say, I like you, all right, but I don't love you. <laughs> it's weird. Uh... But, but in practice, I think that there's also, to answer your question more directly, how do you aggregate these? There's actually a really great thing about approval voting where you can aggregate these votes independently of each other. So every district can count the number of approvals for each candidate, just like we do today. And then they only send those totals into a centralized office. One of the really unfortunate things of ranked choice voting is you cannot do that. You can't do your runoffs at the district level. They have to be all centralized, which makes the, those systems a little bit more easy to compromise. Um, if, you're, if you're a voting security nerd, uh, first past the post doesn't have this problem and ranked choice does. You could argue that ranked choice is worse in that sense. But if that's your argument, you should use approval voting because it doesn't have this problem. We didn't touch it with a poll. The the cybersecurity, which is a big which is a big issue. Not just cybersecurity, it's also uh, Venezuela and Italy sending boatloads of ballots to get Biden elected. Oh, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Your your precious bubble has spared you the madness of QAnon. Well, we'll have to get to cybersecurity and voting security another time. I actually have a few guests on my sites. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We have a number of great guests coming up. We'll release them throughout our vacation and after. And uh, thank you, Zev. Thanks, Zev. <laughs> thank you, Adam and Vanessa. 
This is fun. And thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media. Share us with your friends and enemies. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, stay sane.